Hey, let's have a drink, listeners. We're taking a break this week from our normally scheduled programming, but that doesn't mean we've forgotten about you. So here is a bonus episode from our Let's Have a Drink series in New York City with Common CEO Brad Hargraves. Common is a co-living company that has two locations in D.C., near Shaw and in Chinatown, with more in the pipeline. Brad sat down with Miriam Hall, Let's Have a Drink's executive producer. Thanks for listening and enjoy. What makes United Bank the community bank of the nation's capital? United Bank puts their customers and communities first. That means listening before developing solutions and aligning their approach with your goals. Combine that with extensive local knowledge and a focus on personal relationships, and it's no wonder Washingtonians choose United Bank. Bankwithunited.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Let's Have a Drink, a podcast from BizNow Media, where we have a drink with the people who are shaping New York City real estate. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, we're having a cocktail with Brad Hargraves, the CEO and founder of Common. We meet at Gladys, a Caribbean restaurant on Franklin Avenue in Crown Heights at the bottom of one of Common's locations. They serve things like jerk chicken here, and the cocktails have names like Painkiller or Dundeal. These look amazing. This is a Caribbean restaurant, right? It is. I'll have whatever you're having. Apropos for the time and place, let's do it. Yeah, okay. Let's get painkillers. Common is a co-living company, now with 22 buildings in six markets across the country. After co-founding the private tech school, General Assembly, in 2011, Brad wanted to create something for a section of the rental market he thinks is completely underserved. Single people or young couples without kids who are on middle incomes. The sort of people who consider themselves beyond the typical roommate squabbles, like whose turn it is to buy dishwashing liquid, but still want to live in areas with high rents and are willing to share their common spaces. Thank you. Just a Monday night painkiller. So he took a vacant condo project in Crown Heights in 2015, found an investor to buy it, and they turned it into the first common, a kind of dorm-like rental option for adults. Co-living is still a pretty small part of the housing market, but Brad says the fact that rents across the country keep going up and wages are staying flat means this concept has a lot of room to grow. Walk me through, like, the the kind of mathematics of it. How did you figure out that this was actually, like, a great idea? Well, I mean, the mathematics really come down to creating an experience such that the end user, the tenant, has a significantly better experience that they're going to have on Craigslist. 25 million Americans who live with roommates. Um, But a number of those people want something nicer, want something elevated, and there really isn't that much inventory on the market that's better than your typical roommate share, but more affordable than your new build, studio, one bedroom, etc. For a real estate developer, the math is really simple. We are adding density on a, you know, per, per, people per square foot basis. We're adding value through the incremental services. And the end result is a bump in net operating income per square foot. And most importantly, we've shown that you can take this because you do have creditworthy people on 12-month leases and go get the same financing from a lender that you would be able to get if it were a stabilized traditional multifamily building. And that's the trick to doing this and doing this at scale is really ed- educating 
the lenders educating uh, you know both on the construction and on the permanent side what this is why it matters and why it's not some kooky thing how hard was that I mean has it changed a lot in terms of lenders a lender sees any change any change to floor plan any change to operating model to your business plan and it's going to alarm them. They're going to look at it and say, like, well, why is this different? We've been doing the same thing for a really long time, and it's worked. So it's our job to help them understand the demographic trends, why we're doing what we're doing. In some cases, help them understand some of the risks in the model today. Mm-hmm. We have a number of developers that are looking at co-living a component of a broader-based marketing and asset strategy of like, let's say you're a placemaking developer and you're bringing on 10,000 units into a new project, you don't necessarily want to bring on 10,000 units that all look the same. So maybe you take 500 of those units, 1,000 of those units, and they're cooler. Right. Targeting a different audience. It's kind of a little bit like what happens with co-working. I think the difference is that co-working is fundamentally a new behavior. Ten years ago, people weren't really co-working. There was there were serviced offices, there were you know rent an office, there were things like that, but there, there, there wasn't co-working the way we conceive it today. Co-living is not changing behavior. People were living with roommates for a really, really, really long time, and that is the fundamental understanding that a lender needs to grok in order to get co-living. Is that we're not changing behavior, we're better serving the behavior that's been happening for a very long time. Why is it then, considering we've been doing it for thousands of years, that it is still kind of early days, theoretically, and you're still facing that challenge with lenders? It's a very good question, Ken. Why now? I think there are are a few reasons. I think one, um, you've seen new inventory coming on the market get more and more and more expensive and less and less and less affordable. And since 2008, rents have gone up by over 10% across the entire United States. Nominal wages have gone down 7%. So just that delta between wage growth and rent is going to accelerate. And that's been going on for 50 years, but it's accelerated over the last It's a crisis point now. It's a crisis point now. So I think you've you've tipped the scales where a lot of developers are saying, wait, I can't just bring on more luxury studios, ones and two bedroom apartments, marketing to the same people. You know, at this point, people who make, you know, north of 100,000 a year and expect that that audience is going to be there and snap those units up when these projects deliver in 2020 or 2021. You can't expect that that's going to happen. It's so just people not going to be there. There's not going to be there. There's not enough of them. You need to you need to spread your bets. You need to not just bring on all luxury apartments that look the same and target the same audience. You need to be thinking about different segments of the market. Also, I mean, when you look at it now, it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense, and it, it seems like a really great idea. There must have been a lot of trial and error in the earlier days. There have been a few major pivot points in this business. I mean, one was going toward long-term leases. Another was doing larger projects, so getting away from doing it a brownstone at a time. And, you know, we're working on a number of projects now that have many hundreds of beds. So that's a totally different scale and a totally different operating model in a lot of ways. But it's one that ultimately lets us serve the need 
better and at scale. You know, you can also look at moving to management agreements. When we started, we primarily master leased our projects, mm -hmm. which was great, and we had to do that to start because it gave the owners confidence, um, but it also cut them out of the upside that co-living generates and made it tougher for them to get permanent financing on these projects because they were taking our master lease to the bank as opposed to a portfolio of tenant leases. Right. The latter is always going to do better with the bank. So we've since moved to management agreements and that's been a major accelerant to the business that enabled us to do much larger deals. Common used to pitch co-living to developers as a way to increase returns, but over the past two years, that's changed. They found it's more appealing as a risk mitigation strategy, a way for companies building housing, as Brad says, to spread their bets. And while it is still early days for co-living, plenty of big names like Venado Realty Trust, Boston Properties, the Rudin family have all either tested out co-living or provided backing. Even New York City announced a co-living pilot program last year. Household demographics are changing, Brad says, and some developers haven't caught up yet. Only 18% in New York City, just to quote New York City stat, five boroughs, only 18% of households are a traditional nuclear family, parents and kids. People living with roommates, unrelated adults sharing a household, 23%. The largest segment, single person living alone, 33% of all households. So you add up roommates and single people living alone, and you're at a majority, a significant majority of all households in New York City and other dense urban centers follow the same pattern. You know, you don't see a lot of developers thinking about this and studying housing and household typologies in their market when they go to design their floor plans. And I think that's a shame. They're designing the same things that they've been designing, frankly, for the last 50 years. And things are very different. People get married later. People have fewer kids. Things are totally different. Totally different. The, the, the layouts and the ratios of the, those layouts that developers are building were set decades ago. And I still think the biggest just miss in the market are all these developers on one hand who are building two and three bedroom apartments in North Brooklyn and telling the bank and underwriting, assuming they're going to be occupied by families, and then 95% of them are leased by roommates. That's neither good for the roommates who are living in a home that was not designed for them, and certainly not good for the families who were displaced by those roommates, who may have otherwise leased those units. What is the ultimate goal, do you think? Well, for us, it's about solving a real need and building a huge company while doing that. So it's not huge enough yet? Not even close. I would say our intermediate term goal is 25,000 members. What are you at now? We're a little bit under 1,000, so 30, 30x, let's say. Okay. Which I think we have real visibility into our ability to do that. But if you think about it, that's only like less than 0.1% of everyone who lives with roommates in the United States. So there's still way, way, way more people who found roommates on Craigslist than there are people who live in common. So they're people you're going after. There's still a lot of growth from there. But there are other people who are going after them too now. There are. Are you worried about that? So I think today you have a lot of people as well, a lot of companies that 
are calling themselves co-living or using the co-living word, not necessarily disingenuously, um, but just because it's kind of wishy-washy and no one really knows what it means. So you have some operators that are building traditional units with like nice amenity spaces and community and calling that co-living. Uh, you have other operators building micro-apartments and calling it co-living, um, which qualifies in some respects, um, depending on how it's laid out. Um, and then you have people doing like what we're doing and having shared units um, where you're bringing people together to rent that unit. So it really runs the, the gamut. So you think you do have a leg up in that regard? I am incredibly happy with the, the pipeline we have coming on to date um, over the next few years. And I only see that growing in us maintaining our market position as the leading co-living operator. So I think there will be threats. There will be people coming from every which way. I think that's the nature of this. Um, we just have to be agile and prepare ourselves. What time is it? I have to get home and yeah. put my kids to bed. It's yeah. 6.40 time, is it? Let's Have a Drink is created and produced by me, Miriam Hall. It's edited by Travis Gonzalez. Its supervising producer is Mark Bonner. 